Hello podcasters, wherever you are in the globe, good morning, good afternoon or good evening and welcome to another episode of Banking Litigation Podcast. This is John Corey, joined today by Kerry Morgan and our special guest speaker, Susan Gorgi. First up, we have a case on contractual construction. Susan, I believe you're going to take us through this one uh, concerning implied terms, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, can you tell us what the case is all about? That's right. Uh, this is the recent Lehman's case. LBIE and Exotics Partners, where the High Court had to grapple with whether a term could be implied into an otherwise unworkable debt security trade agreement. In this case, the trade had been made orally over a recorded line, and it seems from the judgment that this was a pretty informal affair, with the court calling the oral agreement colloquial and imprecise. So perhaps unsurprisingly, these informalities gave rise to some problems. The parties ended up in a position where they were both mistaken as to the value of certain notes they had agreed to trade. They both thought they were trading scraps worth approximately 7,000 US dollars, when in fact they were worth over 7 million US. Oh, right. Well, that seems like a fairly significant blunder, Suzanne. (laughs) Absolutely. So first of all, the court had to deal with a question of contractual construction, But it did so applying the now well-established principles around that. There's no new law on this point, and so I don't propose to go into further detail on that here. But the interesting bit is that the court's contractual interpretation could not work without a term being implied into the contract. Without that implied term, the trade would have been impossible to fulfil. It was all to do with the contract, providing for the sale of a non-integer number of notes and whether or not there was an implied term allowing for a cash settlement of a fractional note. The upshot is that the court found in favour of Lehman by accepting the implied term, but it reached this conclusion in slightly curious circumstances. Firstly, the court was clear that the implied term was not obvious because the implication of that term would have alerted the parties to their mutual misunderstanding. Instead, the term was implied solely on the basis that without that term, the contract would lack commercial or practical coherence. In the court's view, this included workability. Secondly, and most interestingly, the court acknowledged that if the parties had been asked at the time of the transaction, they would have likely realised the shared misapprehension and dissolved the trade. That's slightly curious. It doesn't seem to sit, in my mind anyway, particularly well with M&S against um, BMPP, the leading case in this area. Uh, John, you're, you're quite right to flag M&S, which is, of course, the leading authority on implied terms. I think that, in one sense at least, the present case accords with M&S, because M&S says that terms may be implied if they are either obvious or necessary. But the striking problem here is that we're in the necessary bucket of cases, but the term implied was the complete opposite of obvious, so it all feels a bit wrong. Yeah, it sounds like there was a little bit of legal gymnastics going on in this case. I quite like that turn of phrase. Yes, perhaps the court was straining here to reach what it thought was a fair decision, because the defendant here had basically made a $7 million windfall gain and not mentioned anything about it to Lehman. Anyway, Given that the court's approach toward implying terms into a contract is usually so highly restrictive and implied terms are particularly unusual in the securities market, 
I thought this was an interesting one to flag for financial institutions. And I think that we've got a blog post on this decision. Yes, indeed. There is a link, as ever, in the show notes. And uh, thanks for that, Susan. Uh, Quite interesting to see how the court is trying so hard via gymnastics, I think you called it, uh, to find an implied term. Quite unusual. Well, um, moving on, podcasters, we have a couple of cases to look at from a procedural angle. Um, Kerry, I think I'm going to hand over to you um, to start with our uh, start on the deep dive for this month. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John. So for this month's deep dive, I've selected the case of Global Currency Exchange Network and Osage. So this was a case looking at an interesting procedural tool, which is available under CPR Part 86. I won't delve too much into the facts of this case, but just as a brief bit of background, Global Currency was a financial services firm which suspected that one of its customers, Osage, had been up to various alleged fraudulent activities, even including using the account with the firm to operate a suspected Ponzi scheme. So, somewhat unsurprisingly, with these suspicions, the firm froze the account and ultimately sought an order from the court for directions asking who it should pay the frozen funds to. So, you mean the firm could apply for directions under Part 86? Yeah, exactly. Part 86. Um, And that's specifically for stakeholders um, or neutral parties looking for directions as to where to pay debt or money. Interpleader, isn't it? Interpleader. It's near part 86. It is. So you can also call it an interpleader application. Well done, John. John gets bonus points this week. Um, So uh, where the neutral party can um, seek directions for where to pay debt or money where competing claims are made or expected to be made um, against the funds. So in this case, the competing claims were on the one hand from the firm's customer and then on the other hand from the victims of the alleged fraud. So had the alleged victims come forward? Interestingly, no, actually. So even though the firm had been sitting on the frozen funds for three years, at the time of the hearing, there was no indication of any potential claims being brought by the alleged victims. And did it matter that the claims hadn't been brought? So this is one of the key backgrounds, actually, in this case. Um, and that's because the Part 86 procedure can only be used where claims have been made or are expected to be made. Um, but the court noted that the CPR doesn't say made or threatened, so looking at it as a matter of ordinary language, uh, the court said that it was possible for a claim to be expected even if it had not yet been asserted. And then in this case, even though the funds had been frozen for three years and no claims had been brought by the investors, the court concluded that there were still reasonable grounds to believe that the investors would make claims over the funds at some point once they were aware of the facts. And that brings me to the second key battleground, the nature of the prospective claims against the funds that could be brought by the alleged victims. So how did the court know the nature of the investors' claims if none of them had come forward? Well, exactly. So because of the slightly unusual fact pattern of this case, where no competing claims had actually been made by the investors, it was the firm which then had to suggest what the legal basis of those claims might be. The firm put forward various different alternatives, and I don't really have time to go into detail on all of them here. So if you're interested in more of that detail, then please see our Banking Lit blog post on this decision, link in the show notes as ever. But the key point to appreciate is that these claims had to be made against the funds directly rather than any of the parties, so they were proprietary claims. So taking a step back from the detail, one of the main reasons for highlighting this case is because it provides a procedural alternative to a claim for declaratory relief. Both Part 86 and a claim for declaratory relief, be it under Part 7 or 8, 
are procedural mechanisms which parties can use if they need to get clarity from the court, but there are potentially very different costs outcomes depending on which procedure is adopted. So under part 86, the court is given a pretty wide discretion to make a cost order that it thinks is just. Now this departs from the general rule on costs, i.e. that the loser will pay the winner's costs subject to the court's discretion. And plus in the costs rule under part 86, there's no particular weight given as to whether the applicant was successful or not. So the upshot is that there's likely to be an increased flexibility on costs under part 86 in comparison to a claim for declaratory relief. Because the general rule on costs and declaratory relief cases is that the loser will pay the winner's costs, Yeah, right? pre- precisely, precisely. So um, a claim for declaratory relief, um, if the applicant is not successful, um, in those circumstances it will, generally speaking, have to pay the other side's costs. And I think the difference between the two procedural tool and the cost consequences is logical, because a claimant under Part 86 is a stakeholder, a neutral party, who will almost always um, be in a neutral position uh, and seeking protection from liability, rather than looking to make a financial gain. And this is often not the case in claims for declaratory relief. So I think this is an interesting case because it highlights that Part 86 could be a pretty useful tool for financial institutions who are in a neutral position and holding funds. So please do check out the blog post if you would like to know more. Indeed, it sounds like it could be a useful tool and it's not hard to think of cases that may come up in the future where um, parties generally generally need direction about where uh, to, to pay funds to. Interesting. Okay, well, from procedure to privilege, um, we are going to have a look at the dangers of cherry-picking when it comes to legal privilege. Um, The case I want to talk about is Kasongo against Human Scale UK. It's uh, an area you'll all be familiar with concerning cherry-picking in the context of legal privilege. The case arises out of a discrimination case in an employment context, but although it's not a banking case, it undoubtedly has wide application for any litigation we're involved with. Uh, So there's a well-established rule that applies to a party uh, to proceedings who chooses to deploy privileged material to support its case. The basic rule is if a party decides to deploy material, the the waiver of privilege may be broader than the party intended. Uh, As well as being known as cherry-picking, the principle is known as the principle of collateral waiver. The upshot is that if a, um, a court or a tribunal may force the disclosing party to disclose further privileged material to avoid giving an unfair or misleading impression based on the material disclosed. There's a limitation on the principle, which is that the extra material must relate to the same issue or transaction as the original uh, privileged material disclosed. So putting some colour to this, in this particular case, the defendant employer deliberately decided to rely on uh, some privileged material relating to the claimant's dismissal. In summary, some communications between the employer's HR team and in-house and outside counsel. In addition, the employer also disclosed a draft dismissal letter which had been prepared by its lawyers. That document was not itself privileged, but importantly, it included some comments from the employer's lawyers which had been redacted. So the question for the tribunal was whether the employer's decision to waive privilege over some and part of its communications meant that the employer had also waived privilege over the redacted part of the draft dismissal letter. And the tribunal found that there had indeed been a a collateral waiver of the privilege attaching to the redacted parts of the letter. The the tribunal held that the employer was trying to cherry-pick, i.e. selectively waive the privilege. In response, the employer tried to say that the other communications where it had deliberately waived privilege were a separate transaction 
from uh, the lawyer's comments in the draft dismissal letter. That sounds pretty artificial to me. Well, indeed. The the, uh, Employment Tribunal agreed with you, Susan. It firmly uh, rejected the argument on this basis and found that the communications were all part of the same transaction, uh, which was the giving of legal advice about the claimant's dismissal and possible legal implications. So there's nothing surprising about the decision, but the reason I'm flagging it is to act as a reminder of the dangers of cherry-picking, of relying on privileged materials, even where, on its face, the document appears to be helpful to a party's case. You always need to be alive to the possibility that there might be related material, which is also privileged, which is less helpful. And if privilege over those related documents is waived, there's a very real possibility it could undermine the benefit of deploying the uh, original document. So I suppose the takeaway is that a decision to deploy privileged material should never be taken lightly. Uh, A help reminder. Thanks, John. And do we have a blog post on this? Yes, we do indeed. Uh, There's a link, as ever, in the show notes. That's all I wanted to say about that case. I've got one, we've got one more to talk about. Uh, Suzanne, I believe you have an update for us on the Singapore Convention. Yeah, that's right. So the Singapore Convention was signed in August by 46 countries. Just to touch briefly on the aims of the Convention, it's broadly similar to the New York Convention, except instead of arbitral awards, we're talking here about the enforcement of international settlement agreements arising from mediation. Essentially, this means that a party to a mediated settlement can enforce it directly in a foreign jurisdiction without having to first obtain a court judgment. And was the UK one of those 46 countries? The UK, in fact, wasn't one of the signatories, and neither were any of the other EU countries. But I think it's still worth noting, because this convention is being widely adopted globally, and the signatories did include the world's two largest economies, so China and the US. So it's being adopted very widely, and it does give that extra level of reassurance that mediation is a reliable option for resolving cross-border commercial disputes. That's interesting. Okay, thank you, Susan. Uh, Well, uh, podcasters, um, we hope you found um, this month's session informative. Uh, Please do look at the show notes for uh, any detail or any questions you have. We'd be delighted to follow up with. Until next month, it's goodbye from me and Kerry. Goodbye. And Susan. Thank you very much to our guest speaker, Susan, and thank you for listening.